Well, keep your Bibles open to that passage. We are in a series, actually, and I, this will obviously have application for moms and for children, for daughters, for sons, uh, grandmothers, all of that. But we are in a series. This is week two, and this series is in the Gospel of Mark, and it's called Questioning Jesus. And there is a barrage of people that come, uh, and they're leveling questions at Jesus. All of them are. Um, and it's really interesting to see all the different groups of people You've got politically affiliated people. You've got theologically affiliated people who were once enemies to one another, but their hatred and their hostility of Jesus have united them. And so they come with one aim, with one goal, with one purpose, and it is to destroy the Son of God, to discredit Christ, to ridicule Him, to mock His beliefs, to belittle the truth that He's been teaching for these three years. And just days from now, Jesus is going to be crucified. So it's just really interesting to me if you look at warfare, if you look at, at, at battle tactics, there is a tactic that's known um, in warfare, and, and, it's, and it's this. Wave after wave after wave of attack. You wear down your enemy, and when they're most, at their most vulnerable time, when they're tired, when they're weary of the battle, that's when they make a mistake. You find the chink in their armor, and they're undone. So you can imagine Jesus, days before he's going to be crucified and absorb the wrath of God, for sinners like you and me. He's already been approached by the scribes, by the lawyers, the Pharisees. Last week we saw the Herodians came to him, the Pharisees came to him. It's, it's, it's like all these enemies, all this opposition, it's, it's like the Greek mythology, the Hydra. You remember that? Like the, the three-headed monster, whenever you cut off one head, two grow back in their place. It's ridiculous. Jesus is silencing all of his enemies and, and they're increasing. More and more people are coming. So Jesus is going to have a Q&A with the Sadducees today. And I think there's going to be something here for all of us. Um, I cannot imagine something more terrifying than having a conversation with the Son of God. And the last thing that He says to you before you leave, and you never talk to Him again, is this. You are quite wrong. Can you imagine that? that that's it. That's the last word you ever hear from Jesus. You are quite mistaken. Jesus actually says that twice in this passage. He says it in the very beginning of his conversation with the Sadducees, and he says it at the very end of his conversation, and then he's finished, he's done. Bye-bye Pharisees, Jesus took them out to the woodshed. They came to humiliate him, he humiliated them, and he's done with them. And I can imagine that echoed for all eternity for them. You are quite mistaken. It's interesting, the, the word that Jesus used here is, is, is a cosmological word. It actually means a wandering star or a planet that's out of orbit. It means to be misled, to go astray, to actually be deceived. All those passages in the Bible that talk about do not be deceived, it's this word that Jesus used. Look at this together with me. Uh, the very, be very beginning of their conversation where he says in verse uh, 24, Jesus says, I just, I just, you got to love the way that Jesus starts this conversation. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then look at the very last verse um, in chapter 12, verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. And, the, and the, the way it's written grammatically, Jesus is saying you are not only being, you're not only uh, being misled, you are misleading yourself. You are deceiving yourself. You are blinding yourself. 
you're going astray, you're out of orbit. And so everything else in your world, everything else in your universe, in your galaxy is wrong because this one thing you got wrong. I can't imagine that being the last words that I heard of Jesus. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it to be the first words, but then there, there'd be some hope, right? You're wrong and I'm going to correct you and you're going to be humbled and you're going to repent and you're going to embrace what the Bible clearly says. But that's not what happens. They arrive wrong and they leave wrong. They leave calloused. In fact, that's going to be the outline that we see uh, in this passage today. We're going to see just three things. The first point is going to be wrong approach to God's son. They're dead, they're dead wrong. They're misled. They're wandering. Uh, and here's why they're wrong. They had the wrong approach to God's son. They had the wrong approach to God's word. And they had the wrong approach to God's power. So we're going to look at those one at a time here. First is this, the wrong approach to God's son. They come with a lot of pride, don't they? They come filled with arrogance. They don't really come wanting to learn. They don't take a posture of humility. And I'm going to come and I'm going to ask Jesus this perplexing question that's really troubling me. I'm confused. I know the truth is in the, is in the Bible. I know Jesus is, is a good teacher. And so he's going to help me. He's going to guide me. He's going to correct me. That's not the way they approach God's son. No, they want to not only discredit Jesus and discredit his teaching and discredit his followers, they want to humiliate him. They want to embarrass him. They want to take this doctrine of the resurrection and they want to make a mockery out of it. They don't really want to understand it. So that's their approach. They are coming to test Jesus. They're coming to challenge Jesus. And I want to really put this in street leather for you because sometimes we do that. Don't we? I mean, this is America 2019, and you know that the culture, the air we're breathing, the water we're swimming in, this happens all the time. People are going to pick out this one, this one doctrine, this one thing that really unsettles them and unnerves them, this thing they can't really, not only can they not comprehend it, they don't want to embrace it, they don't want to obey it. So they, they single this out, they set it to the side, and they come to you or to the church or to the pastor and they're not really wanting to learn. They're wanting to ridicule this because it, it, it justifies their own rebellion. And we're like that too as Christians sometimes. There's just this one teaching we're, we're not really into. Everybody has that. Let's just be honest today. Everybody has a teaching. Everybody has a hard saying of Jesus. They don't want to celebrate it. It bothers them. It's unsettling to them. Whatever it is, it's at the doctrine of hell that Jesus talked about often. That there is a place of agonizing pain and torment for those who don't believe in Jesus. Some people want to take that and say, look, how can any rational, coherent, reasonable person actually believe that? Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's the teaching that sex is a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's God's idea, not our idea. And it belongs within the confinements of the covenant of marriage. Boy, that, that really gets some people. That gets even some Christians. Or take marriage by itself. That God says marriage is to be between one man and one woman till death do us part. That, see, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's a tall order for a lot of people. So what is it? There's always, there's always something that somebody's trying to discredit they take the wrong approach. These are the Sadducees, and they do not believe in the resurrection. I guess you know that by reading this passage out loud. Look at the very beginning in verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. 
This was not some hidden secret denial. They not only believe it, they say this out loud. Everyone knew this about them. And I don't really like to get bogged down into all the contextual details of a passage and lose you, but you need to understand this. The Sadducees did believe some of the Bible. They believed some of it. They believed the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what's that other one? That's just make, make sure you're awake, okay? They believed the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. They believed all of that. And they do not believe that within those writings of Moses that you can find evidence that would support a resurrection. They would even go further than that. The book of Acts tells us not only do they not believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits. You could almost say, theologically, they were more liberal. Anything supernatural, they stripped the Bible of it. Kind of like Thomas Jefferson is, is known for having his own version of the Bible. He ripped out all the parts that were supernatural. All the miracles of Jesus, all the miracles of Moses, all the miracles of the prophets. And I think he had like eight pages left when he was done. Now, I don't know how many pages it was, but that's what the, they, don't, they, they reject anything supernatural. I mean, I really don't know how you do that in Genesis. Do you? <laughs> I mean, the, the world was created in six days and God spoke it into existence and Moses parted the Red Sea and there's all the, the plagues of Egypt and water coming from a rock and I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what you do with that. I don't know how they weaseled their way and, and neandered through that, but they rejected everything supernatural. But they embraced all the teaching. The 613 laws, they loved that. They thought life was all about, you know, your best life now right here and that's it. There's no afterlife. There's no, there's no resurrection. There's no judgment. It's all right here and stays right here. In fact, the historian Josephus summed up their, their teaching by saying this. When the body dies, the soul dies with it. No afterlife, no resurrection. So they put a lot of stock in what happens here and now. But they did embrace Genesis in Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what they did is they went and they found this teaching in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, about, uh, and this was actually a very merciful provision that God had made. Because in the ancient Near East culture, if a woman married a man, and the, her husband died and left her a widow, but also left her childless, it was a very dangerous and difficult situation. She couldn't just go out and get a job. She couldn't just get remarried. That wasn't part of that culture. So often what would happen is she would be in serious trouble and she would be left begging on her own. So God made a provision in the law and he said that if a widow is childless, then there's this idea of the kinsman redeemer. You're familiar with this through the book of Ruth if, if you're familiar with the Bible. Um, the next of kin on the man's side who's not married, okay, it's not calling for adultery. If he's unmarried, he's supposed to marry uh, his brother's widow and raise up children. And so the Sadducees believe that. They think that's a good thing. But they also believe that they can make the resurrection look ridiculous by taking that one isolated part of the Bible and introducing it to Jesus. So we're going to talk about that in just a minute. That's, that's point number two. Um, but what's amazing to me is you see how patient Jesus is, how tender he is, how he is master of the moment. He's in control of himself. He never loses his temper. But the Sadducees come to Jesus and they have the absolute wrong approach. It's wrong. And so they left humiliated and they left defeated. They left with a calloused heart and with a hardened heart. 
and they left unchanged. They came with a really bad agenda. So that's the lesson for us is when you approach God's son with, with the wrong agenda, you're not going to leave transformed. You're not going to leave changed. So that's point one. Point number two is they had the wrong approach to God's word. And I really want to, this is going to be, this is going to be a longer point, And I want us to just sit here for a minute. They had the wrong approach to God's word. So look at this. Verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What's he talking about? Well, remember, they believe the law, that a, the kinsman redeemer law. So they take this one isolated part of scripture and they come up with this hypothetical, it's almost a joke. I would imagine because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, that they always had this fight, they always had this argument. And the Sadducees thought they had, uh, you know, they, they, they thought they had this, this story that no Pharisee could ever answer. In fact, I bet growing up on the playground, every Sadducee's son uh, presented this challenge to every Pharisee's son. And they couldn't answer the riddle, right? What is it? Here it is. This is the story they told. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. You can tell they're elbowing each other, snickering, winking at one another. And they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You know, they're high-fiving, they're congratulating one another. They're saying, nobody has ever answered this riddle. And don't you love the answer of Jesus? Well, first of all, this would present a dilemma to anybody else. Because listen, if Jesus tries to meander his way through and say, well, you, you know, the, the resurrection is a challenging doctrine. I'll give you that. It's hard to understand. And scientifically, it doesn't really make sense. And him trying to prove that scientifically, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the problem. It's unbelief. They have approached God's word the wrong way. And therefore, they're wrong about everything else. And man, what a powerful lesson and what a powerful application that is for everyone in this building. If you have the wrong approach to God's word, you're going to be wrong about everything else in life. You will. You're going to be wrong about yourself. You're going to be wrong about the world you live in. You're going to be wrong about why relationships are so challenging for you. You're not going to understand the right worldview. You know, everybody in this room has a worldview this morning. Every single person in here. A worldview is three questions. What is the world supposed to be like? That's why you get angry when somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's not the way the world's supposed to be. That's why you hate death. People aren't supposed to die. It's not the way the world's supposed to be. See, everybody has that first question. How's the world supposed to be? Not like this. It's not supposed to be like this. But the second question is really challenging. Here's the second question. What happened? We know the world's messed up. Volcanoes and school shootings and church shootings now. And accidents and death and tsunamis and wildfires. The whole planet is in an uproar and groaning. But the second question is why? What happened? We know this is all messed up. But how did it get this way? If you don't have God's word... 
as your source. If you're not approaching Scripture to help you understand what happened, you're going to get it all wrong. And if you get the second question wrong, you're definitely going to get the third question wrong. How can we put it right? How can the world be fixed? How can I be fixed? What's the world supposed to be like? What happened? How can it be fixed? If you don't approach God's, God's Word as the authority on those questions, you're going to find some, somebody else as an authority. Maybe you're going to be the authority. Maybe you're going to crown reason. I'm a rational, coherent, clear-headed, clear-thinking person, so I'll come up with an answer. Well, you know what? Good luck to you. Because <laughs> people have been trying to come up for an answer for thousands of years. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Where are all your wise men? Where are all the scribes? Where is the disputer of this age? It's really interesting to me when exactly in time Jesus decided, God decided to send Jesus. It had been thousands of years since, since sin ruined the world, right? And Jesus waited till all the philosophers, all the heroes, all the kings, all the judges... All the great men and women, all the intellectuals, the influencers, the movers, the shakers, the politicians, they all came and they all had answers and none of them worked. None of them worked. And then Jesus came. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to address the root problem of all of this. It's alienation from God. It's rebellion against God. And Jesus is telling the Sadducees, not only do you have the wrong approach to me, you're not coming to be taught, you're not coming to learn, you're not coming to be humble but you also have a totally and completely wrong approach to God's Word. You are sitting over Scripture as judge instead of letting Scripture sit over you as judge. That was their problem. And listen, that's the problem of a lot of people, even people in the church, even some Christians. They really don't approach God's Word the right way as an authority, as the final authority. That's not the way they approach it. And that's why there's so many issues that come up in their life that they can't be helped with. And you know what's really interesting to me? The passage, we're going to get to this in a minute, the passage that Jesus takes them to to show how ridiculous the rejection of the resurrection is, you would think that Jesus will say, well, look, guys, if you'll just go to the book of Psalms, I can prove to you the resurrection. But wait a minute, they don't believe the book of Psalms. They rejected it. Remember? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what? All right, let's make sure you're still with me. They didn't believe in the book of Psalms. They didn't take it as God's word. They didn't believe. He could have taken them to Daniel chapter 12. Clearly talks about the resurrection. Or Job chapter 19. I know that I'll see God in my flesh. Nope. Jesus didn't go to any of those places. This is what's astonishing to me. Jesus, Jesus debated them on their turf. Don't you love this about Jesus? I just love this about Christ. He said, look, you want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about Moses. Let's go there. I'll go with you. I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you and head-to-head. -head. You guys have misunderstood even the books of the Bible you do embrace. You've misunderstood them, and I'm going to correct you. Jesus takes them to the woodshed. He really does. And it's interesting, you know, this, this story is also in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, it says he silenced them. I don't know, maybe it's the, uh, just to have a guilty pleasure of not only seeing somebody who's who's wrong, defeated, but humiliated. I, I'm just being honest. I kind of like that. They were silenced. He shut their mouth. Matthew's gospel says, they, the Sadducees, dared not question him anymore after that day. Come on, man. You like that. I like that. You're like, yeah, take that. Jesus took them to the woodshed. I mean, can you imagine going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus? He wrote this. Jesus is the one that led Moses to write this. He was in the burning bush, the passage he's going to talk about from Exodus 3 and 4. 
This would be like saying, you know what, I got an idea. Let's go have a singing contest with Adele and see how it goes. Yeah, you'll do that one time. Or let's go race Usain Bolt on the playground, right? You go ahead and do that. Race the fastest man in the world and see what happens. I just love this about Christ. Because Jesus is, they came to humiliate and discredit him. And they're the experts. They're supposed to be the experts on the first five books of the Bible. This would be like you going to a Wall Street uh, bro broker and lecturing him on money and finances. <laughs> like, they're supposed to be the experts on this. But Jesus is like, you don't know what the heck you're talking about, guys. You don't get it. They had the wrong approach to God's word. Danny Aiken said this, what they claim to know best, the Pentateuch, they actually know least. And because they misunderstood the Bible, they also misunderstood God. Misunderstanding the scriptures inevitably leads to a distorted view of God. He's right, you know. He says, do you not err in that you don't know the scriptures, nor what? The power of God. Listen, guys. If you don't know the one, you won't know the other. You won't. It's impossible. You cannot possibly comprehend and understand and embrace and believe the power of God apart from his written word. You can't. You won't. It won't happen. You will have a distorted, you'll have like a, uh, a Mr. Potato Head God, one of your own fashioning. The parts you like and the parts you dislike. You'll piece together uh, this weak and anemic and sick God that can't help you. He can't save you. He can't sanctify you. And a lot of people suffer from that because they haven't placed themselves under Scripture. They've placed themselves over Scripture. And it's inevitable. That's what it leads to. Well, let's look at what Jesus does say to them. He said, this is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, don't you love this? When they rise, not if. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, we'll start with verse 26 here. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is brilliant. This is one of the most amazing things that Jesus ever said. He says in the passage about the burning bush, when God came and spoke to Moses, he referred to his followers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were long gone. They had died a long time earlier before this encounter with the burning bush ever happened. And he says God referred to them in the present tense, not the past tense. That may sound and seem very small to you. That's huge. It's a huge theological PowerPoint. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am the God. He's not worshipped by corpses. These men are alive and they're well and they will be raised. He's saying, you're quite wrong. You know, that's the one thing, and I love the fact that Jesus takes them to the passage where God reveals himself personally. That's where he gave himself the name Yahweh. It's the verb in Hebrew, I am. It's where God revealed his personal name to Moses. And that's a covenant passage. He's saying, look, I made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. 
And I don't refer to people that I love in the past tense because God has power even over death. I love that. He humbled the Sadducees when he took them to that passage. I mean, that's the hardest thing we have to do as humans. We say, I had a friend. I had a mom. I had a dad. I had a son. I had a daughter. Jesus never has to refer to his children in the past tense, ever. Because when he redeems you and he adopts you and he justifies you and brings you into his family, you're his forever. It's what Paul says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not life. Not death. Not your disobedience or the bad week you've had or the bad year or the bad decade or whatever else it is. You are his. You didn't do anything to attract him and to compel him to save you. And so you're not going to do anything that's going to distance him or alienate him or turn him away or make him abandon you. You'll never be deserted or forsaken ever or walked out on. That's what he's saying here. It's interesting that Jesus picked that passage. Um, I want to show you a verse that really backs up what Jesus is saying in this passage. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Do you know that the Bible says things about itself? It would be wrong for us to brag. Weren't you taught this growing up? You don't talk about yourself. It's awkward. It's weird. It sounds braggadocious and conceited. You don't really... I even felt weird when I was growing up filling out job applications. I'm like, what's your greatest strength? Well, heck, I don't know. You know, my incredible wisdom and athletic dexterity. I mean, what do you, what do you write? Don't you feel awkward filling that out? But you know, the Bible makes claims about itself that are just astonishing. It calls itself the hammer that smashes the rocks into pieces. It calls itself a fire. It calls itself a seed. It calls itself a mirror that shows you who you really are. The mirror that's not, there's no photoshopping with the image that this book shows you. And it calls itself a knife. And one of the most powerful passages about the function and, and the effectiveness of the Bible is Hebrews 4. And I, would, I just want to read that to you. Hope you can see it up here. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You know, the Bible says, just in this passage alone, it says it's powerful, it's precise, and it's personal. This is the book that actually reads you. This is the book that understands you. You know, we think so often we read the Bible and we analyze the Bible and we pour through it and we study it. But you know, the Bible says that about itself. The Bible pours through you and it analyzes you. And it discerns and slices you open. And a lot of people have read this and they think, man, this is like a big, the Bible's like this sword that you swing around. And that's, that's not really the image here. It's, it's not an instrument of death. It's actually, the word for sword is makaron. And it's actually a surgical instrument from the first century. Did you, can you guys see that? Those are all the, it's like a six to eight inch little knife. It's a surgical knife. It's not the knife of a mugger or a thief, and it's not the sword of a soldier. This is a cutting instrument, a surgical instrument for a loving, caring physician who wants to help you and wants to heal you. It's not execution, it's really intervention. That's what this verse is talking about. Have you, let me ask you a question. 
Are you able to cut a thought or a motive? You know, the Bible says this about us, about our human heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things. I know this could sound extremely offensive to people, but, but listen, there's good news in this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things. What's the most deceptive thing in the world you can think of? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> Since the heart's deceitful above that, it's worse. Your heart, my heart, the human heart. It's more deceptive than anything on the face of the planet. And desperately wicked. And then it says this, who can know it? Heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who in the world can know their heart? How can we discern our own? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know what? I know his motives were pure. Have you ever heard that? I get it. I know that's a cliche thing we say. But you shouldn't say it because, number one, it's probably not true. <laughs> number two, we don't know. There's only one human being who ever had pure, untainted motives. It's not your pastor and it's not anybody in this room. It's Jesus. The Bible says we can't even know our motives. But Scripture claims to be able to cut. This is, if you read this passage, and I was reading, uh, I was reading an article when I preached on this passage last year. And a surgical student, I don't even think they were a believer, they were saying this is exactly how a first century surgeon would go about his business in the operating room. As primitive as they were back then, everything it says, it, it, it cuts you open, it's able to discern, it cuts through joints and marrow and ligaments. It's got to get down to the innermost secret places where it can do what it needs to do to bring about change. It's where the power needs to be unleashed. You've got to slice, and we're not able to do that. The Bible is. The Bible is the book that understands you, that reads you, that lays you open. And Jesus is telling the Sadducees, you've, you've never came and approached God's word in that way, to be sliced open by it, so that you can be helped, so that you can be changed. And I know that sometimes, I know sometimes we forget this. We forget this even with evangelism. We think, you know what, I've got to come up in order... For this person to embrace the claims of Christianity and to believe the gospel, I've got to come up with all these scholastic, academic, esoteric, and elite arguments, the cosmological argument and the ontological argument, and I've got to get in creation science and intelligent design and fossil records and carbon dating and archaeology. No, you don't. <laughs> Those things can be helpful, not discounting them at all, and some people have the wisdom and skill to do it. But you know what God says? His word has all the power you need. I don't know if you've ever heard of a famous apologist. That means somebody who defends the Christian faith. His name is John Whitcomb. And he was converted at Princeton University in 1946. And he was a skeptic and was basically an atheist. And he went to a meeting there by the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship. And there was a teacher there that made the Bible come alive. And his heart was pierced. He was converted and he thought, you know what, now that I'm a Christian, and Princeton was, even that early in 1946, it was not a bastion for the Christian faith. In fact, all the professors, none of them believed the Bible. They were teaching against it. And so it was a hard place to be to, to be a Christian and do evangelism. But John Wickham wanted to go and convert the most intellectual and influential colleague of his in the dorm room. So he thought, now that I'm a Christian, man, I'm going to go talk to him and he'll believe. So he found to his discredit that his friend had no interest, no desire. He said, are you serious? In fact, I have a quote. He said, why should I take time to study a religious book that is already nearly 2,000 years out of date? You know yourself that there isn't a single science professor here at Princeton who takes the Bible seriously 
on the origin of the world. The idea of creation by divine fiat is no longer held by intelligent people. I really have no interest in the Bible. So John Wickham was stung. He was blown away. He could not believe... He couldn't believe that his friend had no interest in studying the Bible. So he went out and he searched for some scholastic works. And he couldn't find very many in a Princeton library, but he did find a few. And he brought them back and he said, see, these are telling you what the Bible says. And the guy brushed it aside. And he said, you know what? Maybe one day if I have time, I'll do it. And so John was just flabbergasted. And so he went to this teacher that God had used to convert him. And he said, man, I don't get it. What am I doing wrong? Do I need to go out and get better arguments that... You know, show the weaknesses in evolution and are able to really bring somebody along and, and, and show them evidence and proof beyond dispute so they can believe. And thankfully, his teacher didn't lecture him on the finer points of philosophy and apologetics. Instead, he said, John, you know what? Why don't you go with me out on visitation to the dorms? Five weeks ago, we had a meeting and there was a young man and he filled out a card and said he was interested in talking more about the Bible. Let's go follow up and go see him. So they did. They went and knocked on this guy's door and uh, said, hey, look, man, you filled out a, a card. We're from the Princeton Evangelical Fellowship and we want to talk to you about the Bible. Well, he said the whole dorm room cleared out. <laughs> and there was this one guy left there. And I want to read to you, this is the story that John Wickham years later wrote. He said this guy's name was Tom Smith. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I did fill out a card. I'm not interested in the Bible anymore. I used to think it was true. But five months of study here has been enough to convince me it's full of errors. I'm fascinated to hear you say that. The te my teacher quietly commented, Tell me, what particular errors did you discover in the Bible that convinced you it's not true? Tom thought for a moment. Because <laughs> everyone always says, Oh, there's contradictions all through the Bible. And you say, Well, can you name any? Well, let me get back to you on that. But this guy didn't. He says, Tom thought for a moment and answered, Jonah and the whale. That's it. There's your proof. No educated person alive today could possibly believe for one moment that a whale could have swallowed a man and then spit him out on the shore alive three days later. And then here's John Whitcomb narrating again. He says, here was the crisis for me. How could we handle this direct challenge to the science and historicity of the book of Jonah? Perhaps we could find at the university library some books on whales that would demonstrate their ability to swallow men whole. <laughs> Perhaps we could even find historical evidence of men who had actually survived such an ordeal. That would convince him that the book of Jonah is as infallible as the rest of the Bible. But it was my teacher who answered him first. Tom, I'm frankly very thankful that it was the book of Jonah you seem to be struggling with. There's no more fascinating book in the Old Testament, son. And, and someday, if we have time, I'd like to discuss with you the entire message of that book, which was alluded to by Christ himself for a very important reason. In the meantime, however, would you mind if I explain to you why I have come to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and therefore true in all of its parts? Tom was taken back by the tenderness and the gentleness of his teacher, so he, he gave consent. Tom, I felt the way you do about God's Word when I was a student here 30 years ago. I thought I had all the answers. I need it concerning life, but I was wrong. In his infinite love, God reached down to me in my deep personal need and showed me through this book that my root problem was sin and rebellion, deliberate alienation from God himself. And then John writes, when Tom, what Tom heard was not a scientific, historical, or philosophical defense of Christianity, but a gospel-saturated testimony 
directed prayerfully and intentionally right at his heart. Tom did raise some questions, if I recall correctly, about Christianity and the Bible. Those questions were not ignored, but they were always amplified by new perspectives on the gospel and appeals for surrendering to Christ. It was that approach, using the Bible, that ultimately led to a proud university student acknowledging the lordship of Christ in his life. And then he says later, he went back and visited him and said, hey, how did you overcome that hang-up with Jonah in the well? And he basically said, you know what? If God could raise Jesus from the dead, if he could speak the world into existence, I guess a whale swallowing a man alive probably wasn't, a, <laughs> it probably wasn't too much of a trick for him, right? Don't you feel that way sometimes? We neglect and lay aside the most powerful instrument in the world. And we stack up all these reasons and apologetics. I've actually been to debates where Christian apologists have debated atheists and really ridiculed their, their belief system and mocked them, but I never saw them repent. Because you can't argue somebody in the kingdom. It's the word of God, the Bible says, that has power. And I find it interesting that that's exactly the approach that Jesus took. He took them right back. He took them right back to Scripture, right back to the very Scriptures they said they believed to humble them and to teach them that they weren't interested. They weren't interested. And here's what's really amazing. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Sadducees are stationed there. Jesus had done all kinds of miracles. I mean, don't you think that the Sadducees at least heard that just one week ago he raised Lazarus from the dead who lived outside of Jerusalem? Maybe they even had met Lazarus and knew beyond dispute that this guy was dead and came back to life. They had heard probably about Jesus turning water into wine, uh, raising a little girl from death, stilling the storm, casting out demons, walking on water, all those things. But I want to tell you something. I want you to hear me now, okay? Don't leave here saying I said something I didn't. I believe in miracles. Still today, God could do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And at the same time, I do not believe that miracles produce faith. I believe they strengthen faith that's already in existence, but I don't believe they produce it. And here's why. Because I've read the Bible, and I've seen the unbelief that the people that were brought out of Egypt demonstrated. What did they see in Egypt? They saw the plagues, they saw the Red Sea parting, they saw water on the rock, their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, the sun didn't destroy them. They saw all of those things, and yet they still perished in their unbelief. So here's my question. What does create faith? If miracles don't produce faith, what does create faith? Because that's what Jesus is trying to teach them and us. You know what the Bible says about faith? Let me show you what it says. Check this out. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Don't ever forget that. The word of God and specifically the word about Christ, which is the gospel, the message about Jesus coming to rescue and renew his creation by dying and, and, and raising up himself from the grave. That produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so until you believe, you're not going to understand things like a resurrection. You're just not. That's why St. Augustine, the first century theologian and apologist, said this. He said, I believe so that I can understand. He didn't say, I understand so that I can believe. There's a real subtle difference between those. Do you guys understand? You know, 
Hebrews chapter 11 says this. It says, by faith, we understand that the world was created by God out of nothing. By faith, we understand it. You can't rationalize and argue somebody into faith. You just can't. Because the gospel's nonsense to people to begin with. It's a foolish message, right? But it's the power of God unto salvation. That's what it says. So, the Sadducees had the wrong approach. They don't believe the resurrection because they've discounted the word of God. They've approached the word of God the complete and wrong way. Um, Jen Wilkins says this. She's an amazing writer. And she said this, Bible literacy matters because it protects us from falling into error. Because we do not know our Bibles, we crumble at the most basic challenges to our worldview. Disillusionment and apathy eat away at our ranks. You guys think she's right? You think the people who have a weak grasp on the Bible, the very smallest, I mean, just somebody throws a little bitty rock at the windshield of their faith and the whole thing crumbles. It's like, man, what happened? It's like, well, they had a really nominal and weak and anemic grasp of Scripture, and so their whole, their whole worldview, like a house of cards, came tumbling down. That's what Jen Wilkins is saying, and that's what happened with the Sadducees. They, approached, they had a completely wrong approach to the Word of God, and therefore, that's what happened. So, point number three, moving along now. They had the wrong approach to God's Son. They had a wrong approach to God's Word. And because of all that, they have a wrong approach to God's power. Let's look back up at verse, verse 25. For when they rise, he says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, here was the problem. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so for them, if you did believe in the resurrection, it presented this insurmountable problem to God that he couldn't possibly fix, they couldn't possibly unravel or explain. They discounted God's power. Let me ask you a question. If God spoke the universe into existence by his mere words, if God did all the other things that you read about and embrace in the Old Testament, do you think that it will be a problem uh, how we exist and enjoy relationships in the resurrection? Do you think that will really be a problem at all? <laughs> no, it won't. It won't. Uh, even... If you even take it physically, you know the Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He was talking to people who struggled with the resurrection. They couldn't, get the, they couldn't understand, well, how can, a, how can we be given new and glorified bodies? I mean, some people have been, their body was washed out at sea and fish and turtles ate them. And how are they going to be resurrected? And here's what the Apostle Paul said. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. He's rebuking the Corinthians that couldn't wrap their mind around the resurrection. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. He's saying, don't you know that our bodies are going to be transformed? They're going to be glorious. They're going to be completely different than they are now. It's not going to be a chore for God to, even people that were cremated, for God to bring all those molecules and atoms molecularly restructure and glorify that body, that's not a problem for him. And I've thought about it like this. I've explained it like this before. If you were trying to explain to Alexander uh, Graham Bell what an iPhone 10R was like, do you think he would understand you? <laughs> I mean, seriously, do you think he would? That was the first phone, by the way. Can you see that? 
That's the first phone, and here's the, uh, the iPhone 10. That it has a camera, and that it's, you can text people in another country. I don't, I don't think he would get that at all. What about Henry Ford? That was the first automobile in, in the late 1800s, and it was called a quadricycle. Not a bicycle or a tricycle, a quadricycle. Can you imagine trying to explain to him like a luxury sedan or from his own company, a Ford Exposition 2020, heated seats, video, you know, backing up. Can you imagine trying to explain to him? He couldn't, po- he couldn't fathom it. He couldn't wrap his mind around it. And it's the same thing with trying to understand what God is able by his power to do in the resurrection. And what Jesus is trying to explain to the Sadducees is you have so discounted and misunderstood God's power. You can't possibly imagine life in the resurrection without the same plane of relationships that you have now. See, they were, the Pharisees believed something really ridiculous. They believed that, that we wouldn't be resurrected naked, so we would have clothes on. And so they were debating stupid things like, will they be new clothes? Will they be old clothes? And then where will we be resurrected? Uh, Jerusalem is God's city, so surely every Jew will be resurrected in Jerusalem. Well, how are they going to get there? So the Pharisees had this belief that when you died as a Jew, there were tunnels underground and that your body would roll and it would end up in Jerusalem and ta-da, then you would be resurrected with your new clothes, not naked. And the Sadducees knew this. So they're like, okay, yeah, this is pretty stupid. So what about this, what about this uh, kinsman redeemer law? Whose wife, are, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you guys don't get the power of God, do you? There's not going to be marriage in heaven. By the way, that, that could justify an entire sermon. Be an incredible comfort to a lot of people. <laughs> For a lot of different reasons. All right? You won't be married to your spouse in heaven. Okay? For a lot of reasons. Number one, marriage is a picture that we don't need anymore in heaven. We have our bridegroom, Christ. He will be our all in all. The picture is no longer necessary. You won't need it. And another reason is, one of the purposes and functions of marriage is procreation. Reproducing. In heaven, in the resurrection, nobody dies. We don't need to reproduce, right? By the way, the Sadducees don't believe in angels, remember? This is just another jab. (laughs) Jesus says, we'll be like angels in the resurrection. You don't believe in either of those, but they're both true. We'll be like angels. We're eternal creatures. We never die. We never reproduce. And so some people would think, oh man, that's a bummer. We're not going to have marriage. Listen, resurrection existence is not beneath marriage. It's beyond marriage. (laughs) It's beyond marriage. It would, be, it would be like somebody in Disney World saying, oh man, I wish I could go back to that dirty playground with sharp, rusty equipment. We can't, it's like the Henry Ford thing. You, you can't comprehend, trust me, there's not going to be any lack, any disappointment, any envy in heaven. There's not going to be any. It's going to blow our minds. Some people think of the sexual gratification of marriage. They really do. They think, man, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know, Pastor. Listen, Psalm chapter 16 says this, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, I promise you, nobody's going to be disappointed in heaven for any reason. Our resurrection existence, it would blow our ever-loving minds if we could even see it and understand it right now. Complete bliss, optimal happiness. Nobody's going to want to come back here, trust me, nobody is. And Jesus says, because you've discounted Scripture, because you've discounted who I am, you've also discounted the power of God, therefore you are greatly mistaken. You are greatly mistaken. And you know, I'm closing with this, and I know I've 
Yeah, closing with this. You know what Romans chapter 1 says? It says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is an incredible power, the Apostle Paul says. If you really want to know and experience the power of God, the place where His power is manifested the most is in the gospel. It's at the cross. It's at the resurrection. That's where the true power is. And, and my question for you today, even on Mother's Day, I know we have a lot of people maybe that, that aren't typically at church on Mother's Day. I just want to ask you today, have you experienced God's power in believing the gospel message? Faith comes by hearing that message and by believing that message. Embracing it and saying, you know what? Jesus came and he died and he rose from the grave so that my rebellion... And my alienation from God, the Bible says we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but Christ came. Christ came and he died on our behalf. He took the penalty that we deserve so that we could be brought near, so that we could be brought back to God and we could be united to him by faith. We could become his children, his sons, his daughters, and nothing could ever threaten to take that away. That's where the true power of God is seen, is felt, and is experienced. And if you know that power... If you felt that power, you will be a part of this resurrection that Jesus is talking about. And it's going to be something really glorious to behold and to experience, isn't it? Do you know Christ? Do you know His power? Have you believed the gospel? Have you surrendered your life to Him? Have you repented of your sins? Have you acknowledged, I am a sinner? I'm absolutely hopeless and desperate. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to fix the rebellion in my heart. That's what the Word of God says about you. And Jesus alone came to draw you near and to die for your sins.